Uh, we ask, Father, that your spirit uh, would be pointing us to Christ um, and that he would be honored among us. Uh, we pray that uh, your spirit will strengthen me to uh, preach your word in his power. And we pray that your spirit would work in each one of our hearts, uh, causing us to respond in love uh, to you uh, and to your son uh, and to be uh, seeking to live uh, for your praise and glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the year is about 1450 BC. And until recently, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. But in fulfillment of God's promises to their ancestors, God rescued them. Uh, God brought them out. He performed great and terrible and miraculous acts of judgment upon the Egyptians. He brought his people safely through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And he led them to Sinai. And then he was going to lead them to Sinai and then to the promised land. And now they are in the now and not yet time for them. They are saved now. They've come out of Egypt. They're God's people. God is looking after them and caring for them and providing for them. But they have not yet reached their promised land. They are still in the desert. Not the land flowing with milk and honey. And as we saw last week, they are sinful. No less sinful than us, but sinful. We would have been just like them if we were in their situation without the Holy Spirit helping us. But their sinfulness meant they kept on complaining and grumbling. And though God provided for them, the noise they made when they thought he might not do so showed that they didn't really trust him. And then we come now to this next section. And in this next section, Israel faces her first war. Remember, when they came out of Egypt, they didn't have to fight at all. All they had to do is stand back and watch God do it all. Because Egypt, that, that exodus out of Egypt, that was going to be a picture of redemption. If God saved Israel, so God saves his people. Redemption is God's work. We, we are passive. We sit back and it happens. But now, this is part of the journey of God's people to the promised land. It's picturing something different. It's picturing the now and not yet. It's like our now and not yet. We are in that kind of position too, aren't we? We are, we are God's people journeying to the promised land. God has saved us now. We are, we are God's people now. God is looking after us now. He's leading us now. But we haven't yet reached our promised land. We are still in the world of sin and pain, not in the new creation. And just as Israel had to actively face temptations and battles along the way, we will face all kinds of trials and difficulties on our journey. This is not the time to stand back and watch. It's a time for active service and active battles against the enemies of our soul. So here's what happens to Israel. They have an enemy in the desert called, in, in verse 8, the Amalek, or in some translations, the Amalekites. The, the Amalek are, are, are distant relatives of the Israelites. In Genesis 36, we discover that the Amalek himself, their ancestor, was a grandson of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, who was the ancestor of Israel. So they're related. Uh, years later, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses will remind them about what these Amalek did. He'll say, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? 
how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Looks like the, the Amalekites were not attacking Israel head on, but they were going for the stragglers, people who were left behind from the rest of the community, who were vulnerable. And they go for them and try and attack them, cut them off. These guys probably knew what happened when Israel came out of Egypt. They probably knew all the wonderful things God did in the Exodus. The news would have spread like wildfire. They probably knew these are God's people, but they didn't care. And they attack Israel in a place, uh, verse 8 again, called Rephidim. And so in verse 9, Moses speaks to Joshua. It's the first time we meet Joshua uh, in the Bible. Uh, and he tells him to get ready to fight. He says, choose for us men and go out and fight with the Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua takes his people and he goes out to fight the Amalekites. While Moses goes up the hill with his brother Aaron and a guy called Hur. And here's the interesting thing. Moses got the staff of God in his hand, and whenever Moses holds up his hand, Israel is winning. And when he lowers his hand, Amalek gets the upper hand. And he can see this from where he's sitting, but, but his hands are getting tired. And so Aaron and her help that they get a stone, give him a place to sit, and together they hold his hands up, uh, one on each side. And so his hands are there steady until sunset when the battle is over and Joshua trounces the people of Amalek with a sword. And there are two things that are going to come out permanently from this incident. The first is a record. Uh, in verse 14, the Lord says, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God wants this recorded, which is presumably why we've got it here now. He wants Joshua to know he plans to destroy all the Amalekites. It's not going to happen all at once. Joshua is going to be the one to take the next step. But it is going to happen. God's judgment is going to come upon them uh, for the things they've done. And when the time comes and Amalek's destroyed, the record will show that it is in God's plans and purposes. The second thing to come out of this is an altar. An altar is a place to offer a sacrifice. And Moses builds an altar at the place. He calls it, the Lord is my banner. The word banner is very similar to the word for throne in Hebrew. Because he says in verse 15, he says, oh, uh, verse 16 actually, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. It's probably a reference to the fact that while his hands were raised, God gave the victory to Israel. And his hand figuratively touches the throne of God. A sovereign God who rules all things. His hand touches the throne. He does what is asked of him in the battle. Hand upon the throne. But even though the battle was won, the war is going to continue. There's, there's one battle, but the struggle goes on. And the Lord, verse 15, says, 16 again, the Lord will have war with Amalek, from generation to generation. 
until he's completed his plans. If we actually keep on reading to 1 Samuel 15, we see him destroying them uh, completely. Okay. Well, how does this apply to us? What do we like in the story? Where do we fit in? Well, some people might say we're like Moses. We need to touch God's throne in prayer and wrest the victory from our enemies. Is that where we ought to go with that today? Well, it's good to pray, isn't it? We really ought to do that, and Moses is a good example for us. That's a, that's a good thing. But I think when we automatically identify straight away with the heroes in the Old Testament, we suddenly a grandiose view of ourselves. Right? We're a bit like Moses, yes, but we're a lot more like the Israelites, aren't we? We are God's people. We are God's people whom he has rescued from slavery to sin, who he is taking to the promised land of the new creation. And as we journey, we have enemies. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these enemies are nasty. They know how God has wonderfully saved us through the cross of Christ. They know that Jesus died for us. They know that God is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. They know, but they don't care. And they seek our spiritual harm. They seek our spiritual ruin. Like the Amalek, they especially look for the people who are stragglers. Look out for the ones who are left behind a little bit from the rest of the community. Try and take them while they're vulnerable. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, not on the screen, it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And God is angry with them. God has won a great victory over them at the cross. He promises that in the end they will be destroyed. It's not going to happen all at once. We'll continue to struggle now, but it is going to happen. God's judgment will come upon them, guaranteed. That is prophesied in this Bible, the very same Bible that contains the prophecy of the destruction of Amalek and the fulfillment of that prophecy. And when the time comes and these forces of evil are destroyed, the record will show that it's in God's plans and purposes. But in the meantime, we face battles against them. Ephesians 6 tells us how to fight. It's our weapons are the gospel and prayer. And we are to fight in the strength of the Lord. Like the Israelites who are fighting Amalek, our victory comes from something outside ourselves. And then we remember the picture that God gave us. The picture of Moses, his servant, his prophet, his mediator, with his hands lifted up, a hand touching the throne of God. Why does it give us this picture now? It's not as if it happens with every battle. Why is it shown here in this first battle, the battle that pictures the battle of the Christian life? It's because in our battles we are sustained by a force outside ourselves. As we fight against the forces of evil, we would never survive if it were not for the fact that a hand touches the throne of God on our behalf. And up there, not on the hill, but in heaven, we have someone praying for us whose prayers are truly effective. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
great high priest whose name is love who ever lives and pleads for me. I don't know if you ever feel alone. Sometimes you might feel like giving up. Sometimes you might feel the battle is long and hard and you don't know if you can win. My brother, my sister, Jesus is praying for us. And as long as Jesus is praying for us, the battle is ours. As long as His hands are lifted up in prayer, we have the victory in the end. Moses got tired. There were times where he put his hands down. He had to sit down. People had to help him keep it up. But Jesus is not like that. He's our perfect mediator. Hebrews 7.25 reminds us that He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Press on in battle. You've got Jesus, not Moses, praying for you. Don't give up now. What a great high priest we have. Well, in Amalek, we see one group of people who weren't Israelites responding to God's people as they journey in the desert. In our next section, we see a very different response. We see a man called Jethro. He's a priest of Midian. He's a father-in-law of Moses. And he's also heard about the things that God has done in saving his people. And he plans to meet Moses in the wilderness near where he's camped at Sinai. And he's got Zipporah, Moses' wife, and his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, with him. Presumably, Moses sent them back to his wife's family during the particularly dangerous times when he was confronting the Pharaoh with the plagues. Makes sense. Pharaoh's a ruthless man. Probably better to keep the family away from him. Yes, lest he use them as leverage against Moses and his mission. But now that Moses is safe in the wilderness and Jethro is bringing the family to to be reunited. He sends a message to Moses that he's coming. Presumably a messenger, not WhatsApp or SMS or anything like that. And Moses gets the message and he goes out to meet him. And he shows him great respect as his father-in-law. And he expresses it in a way that's, that's appropriate for his culture. And so you look at verse 7. And you see, he goes out to meet his father-in-law and he bowed down. He bows down and he kisses him, presumably on the feet. And they ask each other their welfare. They go in the tent. And Moses tells his father-in-law about all the things that God has done to rescue his people. Tells them the Old Testament story of redemption and salvation. He informs him, verse 8, about all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And how does Jethro respond? He rejoices in verse 9. He rejoices in all the good that God has done to Israel, in that he has delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they have dealt arrogantly with the people. Do you see that? 
Jethro hears about the mighty acts of God, the mighty acts of Yahweh in saving his people, and he now believes in the supremacy of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so, you see in verse 12, this pagan priests, this pagan priest brings a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Aaron and the elders of Israel, they come and they eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. That is, they're having this the fellowship meal. They're together under Yahweh. That's a good thing, isn't it? So what's important for us here? Well, again, there's good example, isn't there? And we have here in Moses a very good example for evangelizing our elders, don't we? Like Moses, we go out of our way to show great respect to our elders. Whatever is culturally appropriate. And in the context of that relationship of respect and affection, we share with them what God has done to save his people. We don't share anymore about what God did in rescuing his people in the Exodus from Egypt. We share how Christ has saved us from sin and death and hell. and How he paid the price for our sins through his blood on the cross. How, how he took our punishment in our place and how he rose again in great victory as Lord. And how he sustains and keeps us through all the difficulties of this life. And how he's bringing us to his eternal kingdom. And, and as we share, we pray that like Jethro, God would bring them to, to worship him as well. Again, good example, good model for us, but not really the main point of this story in the Bible narrative. Something even more important here. Because here we see a big example of a Gentile believer in Old Testament times. Don't we? Do you notice that? He's a Gentile. He's, he's not part of Israel. But he has come to worship Yahweh. Why? Because he hears the message of what God has done in saving his people. And he believes. Now, some people will draw the wrong conclusion from this. They'll say, as long as it doesn't, ma it doesn't matter what religion you follow, as long as you're sincere. But that is not what this passage is saying, is it? It's just not what it's saying. Jethro hears the message of Yahweh's rescue, and he worships the God of Israel. He becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. He's converted. But he's a Gentile who's converted to become a worshiper of Yahweh. He doesn't actually become an Israelite. And in verse 27, he departs and goes back to his own country. See, friends, God has always had people who are his, but who are not part of Old Testament Israel. They're not his because they are pious people of their own religion. They are worshippers of Yahweh. Worshippers of Yahweh who hear and believe and rejoice in the message of Yahweh's salvation for his people. The Old Testament gospel, if you like. But they're still not Israelites. In the New Testament, they're called God-fearers. People like Cornelius in the New Testament were one of those God-fearers. He worships Yahweh, but he's not a Jew. And we know that he's one of God's people because when the gospel comes to him, he believes. So friends... Who are we like in this passage? Again, we're not so much like Moses as we are like Jethro. We are those who are Gentiles, 
but have become worshippers of Yahweh. People who are not from the physical Israel, but have heard the great salvation that the God of Israel has wrought. We've heard about the rescue that God has done for His people. Yes, the rescue of the Exodus, but the even greater rescue through Jesus that the Exodus was pointing to. We heard the gospel, and now we worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. We join in fellowship with Him. We are in fellowship with the Jews who worship, who truly worship Yahweh. That is, the ones who recognize that Jesus is Yahweh come in the flesh. And like Jethro, we can share table fellowship with them. Because in Christ, we are genuinely one with them. He has broken down the barrier of Jew-Gentile. And God receives people from every nation who believe in Jesus. And that includes us. And a precursor to that is someone like Jethro. Well, the next day, Moses goes back to his job of judging the people. And the people are standing around him from morning till night to to hear of his verdicts, and and Jethro notices it. So he says to him in verse 14, he says, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? And and Moses answers in verse 15, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. Uh, When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. I make known the statutes of God and his laws. But Jethro is not impressed. He says in verse 17, What you're doing is not good. It's not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people. Verse 18, You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I'll give you advice. God be with you. And here's the advice. Moses will still be the mediator. In the second half of verse 19, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. All right, he's still going to do that. Still represent the people to God and God to the people. But add another dimension. Verse 21, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe. And place such men over people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, and a small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all these people will go to their place in peace. What's he saying? He's saying delegate responsibility by delegating to people of good character. Give them the option of referring matters back up to you. And this will enable you to endure and ease the bottleneck in the quest for justice so that people can go home in peace. That's good advice, isn't it? Moses listens to him, does what Jethro suggests. He appoints men over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And so there must be some kind of pyramid structure. Some over thousands and some over hundreds and fifties and tens. All right. And then the leaders themselves judge the people. Hard cases, they refer up uh, to Moses. So what do we learn from this? Well, again, there's the obvious example, isn't there? There's an example of delegation in leadership. 
And on the advice of his father-in-law, Moses delegates his responsibilities to good, trustworthy people. Delegation is necessary if we're going to lead an increasing number of people. Even the apostles found that in the early church in Jerusalem. As the church grew, issues arose. One of the group complained that widows weren't being properly looked after, and so the apostles got the church to choose seven people of good character, and they appointed them to the duty of serving tables. A delegation's a good idea for leaders. But like Moses, like the apostles, must be careful only to delegate to people of good character. And that's what we try to do in St. Mary's too, isn't it? I delegate the pastoral leadership of Smack 1 to Tim and Smack 2 to Kenneth. Uh, like with the Israelites, normal way of dealing with pastoral issues, the congregations to, to bring it to them. It doesn't mean you can't talk to me about things. Of course you can. My brothers and sisters, I care for you deeply. I'm always ready to talk to you. But in terms of the system, the normal way is to bring things to Tim or Kenneth first and then refer to me if necessary. Same thing with our small groups. Normal thing in groups, they go to small group leaders first. They can't handle, then goes to Tim or Kenneth. There's nothing sacred about the system. Didn't come out of heaven from God. It's not a command of the Bible. Just because Moses did it doesn't mean we have to do it. It's no sin if we don't. It's flexible. But it's generally good advice because it enables things to happen without the bottleneck. And that's the advice that Moses gets. Delegate to trustworthy people of good character who can refer back to you if necessary. But more important than the delegation itself is a principle that we see here of how, this, how Moses came up with this plan. Put it this way. This advice to Moses was good advice from, from someone who had just been converted. Isn't that interesting? Jethro wouldn't have had time to learn about Yahweh and his ways. And God hadn't given any laws to deal with how to organize leadership structure and delegate. But you see, because God is a creator and we are made in his image, there are things that we can learn about how the world works from observing the creation itself rather than God having to reveal things in a particular special way. And one of those things is the art of delegation. Don't need God to tell you how to delegate. A pagan priest with many years' experience has just been converted. He can tell you as well. And even Moses listens to his advice. The Bible shows us that you can get wisdom from outside the Scriptures and apply it among God's people to good effect. Of course, it's always judged by Scripture. It's always under the authority of Scripture. It's always tentative, always negotiable, always recognized as such. And of course, it doesn't mean we simply go and pick up things wholesale. We need to be careful to work out the assumptions behind some of the conclusions in all these different areas because if the assumptions are wrong, then we're dealing with the wrong conclusions. It can be very destructive for God's church. But having said all that, all those caveats aside, there are still good things to learn from outside because God gives what theologians call common grace. It makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives people who don't know him the ability to learn and discover things in the created world and things in physics, things in medicine, things in IT, things in management. And some of these things can be useful in serving his people. So that's a lesson to learn here. But it's not the most important lesson. It's not the biggest thing. More important than both these things that we see in these verses 
is the limitations of Moses. Remember, Moses is the great prophet of God. And while he wants to deal with everyone, he can't. He is physically not able to. And so things are banking up and people are waiting around from morning to even, evening. He is tired out from trying because he is not the perfect mediator. He is not the perfect prophet. He is not the perfect leader. But in the Lord Jesus, we have a leader who is greater than Moses. Yes, leaders among God's people can shepherd them. But the one who is ultimately responsible for them is the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus himself. And while there is a sense that Jesus delegates responsibilities to leaders in church, there's another sense in which Jesus actually does what Moses can't do. Jesus is the one who brings justice to each one of us individually. Jesus knows us individually, inside out. In fact, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He rules the universe. But there's no cue yet to go and line up morning to evening to talk to him. You can talk to him anytime. In fact, you're to cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And he will personally look after you. Yes, you will wait for justice. Yes, you wait. Not because he's overwhelmed with people like Moses was and can't do it all at once. It's because he trusts the Father and will wait for the time the Father is appointed. So don't get too upset if you don't see justice done now. Trust Jesus that in the end, he'll be the one to judge every individual. And he will judge with perfect justice. And so as we read this passage, if we look at all three of these parts of this passage, in the end it reminds us of the greatness of Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is our great high priest who always praying for us, whose prayers make it possible for us to persevere and overcome the enemy. Jesus is the one who has saved us Gentiles, brought us into his kingdom, made us part of his people. Jesus is the one who dispenses perfect justice for his people, even if we have to wait for it to happen. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, except that he's greater than Moses. Moses was God's servant. Jesus is not only God's servant, He's God's only begotten Son. And what a wonderful Savior that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Thank you that in the midst of the battles and 
the trials, the temptations, the hurts, the disappointments and all the things that we face in this world. Even as the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Even as we face the enemies of our souls. We know that Jesus loves us. That he's praying for us. And that we are sustained by that. And in the end our strength is in his victory. Thank you that he has saved us Gentiles who are not part of Israel. But who have heard the good news of your salvation. And worship you. And you have made the two one in him and made us part of your people. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that he is the one who truly knows and truly understands and will judge with perfect justice. And even if we have to wait, we know that this will happen. And we know that he's got all things in his hand. Father, we pray that you help us to persevere in loving and trusting him. Help us to keep looking to him as our high priest, as our savior, as our judge. May we love him more and more and more and therefore serve him and obey him. We ask this in his name. Amen.